for whatever time you're listening to this podcast, I'd just like to say good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Before we get started, I'd like to share with you these words by Maya Angelou. Words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes a human voice to infuse them with a deeper meaning. With that being said, I bring to you greetings from South Carolina, the home of such black icons as Majeska Simpkins, Robert Smalls, James Brown, and the Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman. I'm your host, Michael Bailey, the founder of the Minority Eye News Blog and the Minority Voice Podcast. I strive to be a vigilant voice for minority communities everywhere. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Minority Voice, a podcast where there's no politically correct sound bites, no partisan propaganda, and most importantly, no corny celebrity gossip. Just real conversations with real people about real issues that matter to minorities and minority communities here at home and abroad. We give you, our listener, the opportunity to hear the minority perspective on breaking news, upcoming events, hot button issues, and people who are making headlines and news today. All that and more in our own words, in our own voice. As the protege of a Southern Baptist preacher, I say to you what was said to me on a many a Sundays. I promise you I won't be before you long. Once again, I'm your host, Michael Bailey, and I'll do my best to keep it real, relevant, righteous, and radical. This is the Minority Voice Podcast. Uh, thank you guys for uh, joining us today, and thank you for all those out there listening. Um, today is Memorial Day, and I hope you all are having a, a, a great day. Um, on Memorial Day, we honor our men and women in uniform who stand on the front line and protect us uh, so we can enjoy the freedoms that we have here at home. And as it would be this Memorial Day, we have new frontline workers, uh, delivery uh, drivers, uh, grocery store workers, uh, EMTs, uh, nurses, doctors, all who are fighting an invisible threat that are claiming hundreds and thousands of American lives as well as across the world. Um, and so this Memorial Day is, is, is quite special. Um, today we wanted to do something a little different. Uh, we wanted to take a pause from politics for a minute and talk about what it is uh, that protects politics. And we want to honor our men and women in uniform, but we want to do that by getting um, some background about Memorial Day and about um, the history of our men and women in uniform, especially our men and women of color. And so they joining us uh, on the phone, we have uh, Kyle Carter. <laughs> Mr. Carter, how you doing today? I'm doing well, sir. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for asking, man. Uh, I hope you and your family are staying safe. <laughs> oh, most definitely we are, sir. Um, uh, did you do any, uh, uh, did y'all guys do any cooking on the grill today? Uh, unfortunately, no, pretty much between the weather and trying to basically do our best to social distance. We really didn't do that much cooking. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Kyle, uh, let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you. Well, well, my name is Kale Carter and I was born here in, in South Carolina, specifically Columbia, South Carolina, but I grew up in Houston and as a young man, really, I started getting interested in black military history roughly around the age of 11 years old. So 
pretty much I would go to the library, try to get any book I could on it, on the subject matter, try to research as much as I could because at the time, I grew up watching the History Channel and I would notice there wouldn't be that many documentaries on black soldiers in World War II or black soldiers in World War One. So that kind of led to this quest to start researching as much as I could about the subject. So at 14 years old, I, I was fortunate enough to start volunteering as a, as a tour guide at the Buffalo Soldiers National Museum in Houston. So I went from being a 14-year-old tour guide and seemed like after that point, almost every other year I was getting going from being just a tour guide to the, the resident in-house expert to by the time I was 18, when I was graduating from high school, I was the chief docent. And at the time I had 6,000 hours of volunteer service just trying to help educate the public on the history of the Buffalo Soldiers and black troops that served throughout, throughout American history. So after that, I went to college and my major was history and political science. The, the alma mater was Houston Tillotson University in Austin, Texas small HBC out in, out, in, out in Central Texas. Uh, while I was at the university, I did I did kind of a combination of graduate, basically graduate graduate school preparatory courses through the Mellon Bay's Undergraduate Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And in addition, I was also doing living history with the Texas State Parks and Wildlife Buffalo Soldiers Heritage and Outreach. So pretty much Monday through Friday, I would go to class. Saturday, I would basically put on a uniform of Buffalo Soldier, go out to various parks and locations, and again, educate the public about the history of the Buffalo Soldiers, how the history impacted not only the state of Texas back in the 1800s, but how it still impacts us today. And before I graduated, I ended up going abroad to France to research um, a French fighter pilot who was an Afro-French fighter pilot named Roger Savage. And... I basically went over there to try to research his backstory, try to understand more about him because I would hear a lot about him, but I wouldn't get really a full story about what he did before the war, like how, how he become, how he, how was, how come he was half uh, Martinique and, and half French. And mm-hmm. yeah, as a result, after I graduated, I came back to South Carolina and currently right now I'm between doing my day job, I'm applying to the PH, to doctoral programs to try to help do more research on the impact of black veterans getting locked out of the GI Bill in World War II and how that connects to wealth inequality today wow, within that, the black community. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I want to start off. Tell us um, a little bit. I, I mean, we've we've touched on it in in terms of. Uh, the media, and you've seen a lot of posts um, online about Memorial Day being started as a, an African-American holiday. They were honoring African-American soldiers. And so it's been some, you know, some 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 different um, new facts about that. And I wanted to, could you tell us a little bit more about how Memorial Day was started and the implications of African-Americans in, in its start? Well, and the modern alliteration of Memorial Day really can be traced back to Decoration Day. Okay. Decoration Day was a holiday that came out came about immediately in the aftermath of the Civil War to, in essence, honor the dead that that died in combat and died during the Civil War. Now, of course, before that, we did have kind of preceding events that occurred 
throughout the North and the South as well. In the case of the South, a lot of the kind of predecessors to Decoration Day and ultimately what we now know as Memorial Day was mostly carried out by by Southern women who would go to the graves of of the recently the, of the dead that was killed in the war and and asking to plant flowers on their graves, make sure that the graves were well maintained and everything else. Now, what was unique about South Carolina is that while South Carolina did have events like that occurring, unlike most of the South where most of the uh, predecessor events of Memorial Day was mostly like Southern women honoring the dead were honoring the dead, most of those was honoring the Confederate dead. In the case of South Carolina, specifically Charleston, South Carolina, in May of 1865, in the aftermath of the Civil War, you had freedmen who were in Charleston, the freedmen and freedwomen, mm-hmm. who were who got together, had a large parade, but in addition, they also got together and re basically buried about about this one. 257 Union, sol- Union soldiers that were just dumped in a mass grave after the Civil War because they were formerly prisoners of war from a Confederate camp. And of course, when they died, they just, the Confederates just dumped them in a mass grave. So the freedmen and freedwomen being appreciative and understanding the significance of their sacrifice to, in essence, in essence fight to eradicate slavery. They found these. They found those those bodies. They they basically reinterred them in a proper cemetery, gave them honors, and then they had a large parade in honor of those of the dead. Now, as a result, I know of course as a lot of the posts say, a lot of the posts will say that, well, basically this is the the beginning of what we now know as Memorial Day, mm-hmm. and. According to the, according to some documentation, it's, it's kind of up in the air about that. But the one thing I will say about that situation, what makes it really unique in comparison to other situations, other instances of people honoring the dead up to that point, was that up to that point, it was more so a kind of a, you could say, shall we say, an intimate affair where it was just the people who were directly impacted by the war, people who lost their, in the case of the Confederacy, people who lost their fathers, their sons, their brothers. Mm-hmm. But in the case of the freedmen and the former slaves in Charleston, what made it unique was that, as I mentioned before, they, these, these were people that really didn't have any connection to, they didn't have any direct connection to these Union dead. They they did not have none, none at all, but they still wanted to honor them for their for them paying the ultimate sacrifice and ultimately sacrificing their lives in essence for those slave for those former slaves to gain freedom. Okay, um, so the so I'm I'm, I'm trying to uh, understand what you're saying because a, a lot of the articles saying so were a lot were any of the uh, African American um, soldiers in that mass grave that we that you were speaking of. So, or, or is it believed to have been any uh, black soldiers interred in that mass grave? Not from what I recall from the research I've done thus far. 
Okay. Because historically, during the time period, or like, like if any, if any of y'all remember, I think, I think they made mention of it in Glory, and they made mention of it in a few other sort of popular cultures. During the Civil War, and it, ironically, this kind of ties into what I, I want to kind of talk about next, which was the first South Carolina Volunteers. During the Civil War, black soldiers who were in Union uniforms were not often given the same privileges of their fellow Union, white Union soldiers' counterparts. Mm -hmm. Usually in the case of, now it's, again, this is, oh, now there are individual cases where you did have black soldiers that were taken prisoner of war, but overall what tended to happen, and of course this, this can be traced back to Battle Creek of uh, the siege of, of Petersburg and a few other areas where you had where the Confederate forces, if they saw any black soldier in a Union Army uniform, their goal was to either kill them outright, basically as soon as they, if they surrender, execute them outright, or to sell them back into slavery. Okay. So while there are a few cases here and there where you did have black POWs, most black soldiers, most black soldiers were rarely take or really, shall we say, really given the consideration of the rules of war. Okay. Because, again, it kind of goes back to, well, the, again, why the South was going to war in the first place. Right. If you treat them, if you treat the former, if you treat the former enslaved or, or people, basically people of color or black, black uh, basically black freedmen of former slaves as people, then you're defeating the purpose of why you succeeded in the union in the first place. Okay. Um, I had a question and um, wanted to be clear. Uh, there's a lot of uh, misconception that uh, the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, which was, uh, you know, made famous by uh, the movie Glory, those were Buffalo soldiers when indeed they were not what was uh, considered to be Buffalo soldiers. Can you um, elaborate on what, when was the Buffalo soldier, the unit, that was known as the Buffalo Soldier, when was that unit created versus the Massachusetts 54th Regiment? If, if you don't mind, Mr. Bailey, like, is, is it okay if I, if, if I interject some extra into this? Okay, into yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Okay, so now, of course, when we talk about black troops in the Civil War, we always talk about the Massachusetts 54th. Right. And... And of course, we like, of course it's understandable why because the movie Glory came out. Glory was, a, was an excellent movie and everything, but believe it or not, there were other black regiments that came in the Civil War way before the Massachusetts Sixty Fourth. In fact, South Carolina had one of the earliest all black regiments raised in the Civil raised during the Civil War, and they were called the First South Carolina Volunteers. In fact, they started mustering in. A whole two months prior, a whole two months before the Massachusetts 54th Infantry mustered in and started forming the regiment. And what makes what makes the, the first off on the volunteers unique is that unlike unlike the other units, like in the case of the Massachusetts 54th Infantry, a volunteer infantry regiment, they were raised up north, but Unlike the unlike the Massachusetts 54th in the first South Carolina Volunteers, it comprised primarily of former slaves that were on the Sea Islands as well as some slaves that escaped from Florida. And 
what also made them unique too is that they were one of the units that Harriet Tubman would assist, would assist, would provide assistance and you said, shall we say intelligence for when they would go on raids on the coastal parts, the coastal areas of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. So I'm sorry I'm to kind of go on that whole tangent, but I had to interject that in there because like when it comes to popular culture, like people, popular culture will say, oh, the Massachusetts 54th was the first. No, South Carolina had one of the first regiments raised, all black regiments raised in the Civil War. Yeah, so are you, are, are you saying that a TV movie got it wrong? <laughs> well, 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 the, fun, the funny part about it, if you watch Glory, if you watch Glory and then you read the history of the first South Carolina Volunteers, you do see where whoever did the movie probably took elements from the story of the first South Carolina Volunteers. Like one of them, one of the elements, like one of the elements I, I vividly remember from the movie is where the soldiers were protesting the fact that they only got paid $10 an hour compared or ten dollars a day in comparison to the other folks who made thirteen a day. Right. That came actually came from um, the uh, basically a, a federal it was a, it was a federal law at the time involving the kind of the the addressing of contraband, which were people who were formerly formerly slaves who escaped to Union lines. Now, at first, during the early part of the Civil War, when Union forces ran across people who escaped slavery, they their first instinct said, "Okay, we'll just send them back to the South." But then after a while, so many numbers came in, it got to the point saying, well, okay, well, let's just go ahead, hire them to basically do kind of um, like labor, like do certain labors around kind of basically like laundry work and X, Y, and Z. And of course, they had to compensate them, so they'll pay them roughly $10 a day. Now, after a while, when they started raising black regiments from the deep south, they had to, of course, they had to pay them, but initially the pay scale was still along the lines of the contraband pay scale. Mm-hmm. And that's where you started seeing soldiers from from various all black from various color USCT regiments starting to say, hey, like we're going out, we're sacrificing our lives. We deserve better pay. We deserve fair pay. So but yeah, but 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 yeah, when it when it comes down to it, listen, the movie movie did get some things right now. Is it completely historically accurate? No. But as a as a movie, it does a decent job of kind of introducing people to the the subject matter and getting people to want to pre- learn more about the subject matter. But 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 going back to your main question about the Buffalo Soldiers, the the thing the thing is during the Civil War, you, during the Civil War, and really during the er, the early years of the Civil War, you had you had basically volunteer regiments, and these were these were basically predominantly black regiments that were raised from various states to serve in the war. So you had the Massachusetts 54th Infantry, you had the first Kansas, first Kansas Volunteers. Now, of course, as the war dragged on, they needed more manpower. They had to find a way to organize all, find a way to basically kind of standardize and organize all these units. And that what led to the formation of the United States Color Troop Bureau which was in essence kind of a government organization that was designed to kind of help standardize, help standardize and help kind of, in essence standardize the black units that was coming from various areas. So like say for example, the first South Carolina volunteers, as time went on, they were converted to the 33rd United States Color Troops. So it was a way to kind of help standardize, or help raise and standardize 
the units so that they can help basically be integrated into the Union Army in, on all practices, basically integrated into the Union Army for military service. Okay, now let, let me let me ask you this so I, I want to get something straight. So when you say um, volunteer unit, a volunteer unit is not classified. These these individuals are not classified as American uh, U.S. so Union soldiers. They are volunteers. Is that is am I understanding that correct? Well, they still they still are Union. They were still considered Union soldiers, but because they were volunteers, mm-hmm. they were volunteers from the individual state. It was kind of seen as. I said, now again, don't quote me on this because again, like Civil War, that's, that's one of the subjects I'm still learning about and kind of getting to the point to where I'm, I'm trying to get to the point where I am with World War II stuff where I'm able to just pull everything off of memory. But with the volunteer units, they were still part of the Union Army, but the idea with the United Color Troops, the United Color Troops Bureau was to try to help standardize and help basically create more black units. Because the thing is with the volunteer units, the volunteer units were basically situations to where people would come in and say, okay, well, who wants to serve in the army? Or who wants to join in the, in the, in serve in the fight in the war? And the thing about volunteer units, you had to find a way to recruit them. You had to find a way to recruit person. You had to build the units from scratch. You had to find uniforms, find weapons, find equipment. And, and in fact, the perfect example of that would be the, the, the kind of the regiment that was raised from South Carolina. So in South Carolina, we, there was, Roughly about four, four black or four volunteer regiments that were basically considered colored. And of the four, the first and the second were were basically able to fully get to their full strength. The third and the fourth South Carolina volunteers, they were able to get somewhat close to their strength, but then they, and they actually tried to raise a fifth. Like South Carolina Volunteer Infantry Regiment, but they couldn't reach full strength. So as a result, they had to go ahead disband that unit and then combine the third and the fourth to make another regiment. What is so, considered what is considered full strength? When you say full strength, what is that number? Full strength means that you're able to get all the personnel required for that for that, that for that specific um, unit size. So like say for example like basically just get like a, a random number. Say for example, a regiment regiment may require five thousand people. Like not only for just soldiers, but for cooks, for cooks, cooks, specialists, blacksmiths, and blacksmiths and all that and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. When a unit is able to get basically at five thousand people, they're at full strength. But if they got say for example, if they need five thousand we considered a full regiment, but they only was able to get three thousand they may be at partially full strength, but they're not at full strength. Okay. Okay. I understand. So, but, um, but with the United States Color Troop Bureau, it kind of helped. Basically, its job was kind of to help oversee the creation of not only black, uh, not only of the, of the United, United States Color Troop Infantry Regiments, but the creation of field artillery regiments and cavalry regiments. Now, keep in mind, in the aftermath of the Civil War, they had to basically go ahead disband the National Color Troop Bureau, and a lot of the a lot of the units that made up the United States Color Troops were starting to get mustered out and sent home. Now, of course, during the start of the Reconstruction era, the 
part of the focus was rebuilding the South that after the South got destroyed, rebuilding the country, but also there was most of basically motive to go out west to try to to basically get people to kind of move from the south or move from other areas to in essence settle the western frontier. Now, because of the of the the combat experiences of black soldiers that saw service in the Civil War, when well, I'm, I'm actually skipping ahead a step. So, so after the Civil War, as with most major wars, the U.S. military has to start downsizing. So the military started downsizing, but the problem is they didn't have enough. While they was down, they didn't, they didn't have enough soldiers to actually cover the specific trails that people was using to move westward or provide or man the forts on the frontier and do like just kind of a basic protection that American citizens were expecting as they moved westward. So in 1866, Congress authorized the gave authorization to kind of expand the peacetime army. And and one of the one of the ways they expanded the peacetime army was through the inclusion of six black regiments. Of the six black regiments that were created, it was two cavalry, the ninth and the tenth, and four infantry, which was the 38th, 39th, 40th, and 41st infantry regiments. Now initially the hopes was what the hope the hope that there was a, that they were hoping for was that while they was raising these regiments, that a lot of veterans who fought, a lot of the black veterans who fought in the Civil War would join these units and serve in the peacetime army. Because keep, keep in mind, prior to this point, up, up from, the, from the American Revolution, from, sorry, I'm getting from the American Revolutionary War up to the Civil War, African Americans served during times of war, but when, when the war was over, any black soldiers or any black soldiers that was a part of the military, they had to get mustered out. So you really couldn't make a career out of serving in the military. But with Congress passing the authorization, passing authorization for the creation of these six all black regiments in the peacetime army, that opened up a new avenue for people to, well, basically, especially for, for not only former black Civil War veterans, but also this like former slaves, freedmen, they provided them an opportunity to have a career serving in the military. And keep in mind, during this time period, 1866, or really during from this point, and really through the Reconstruction era, there really wasn't that many opportunities overall for a person that did not have any skills. If, if you were a former slave and you didn't have that many skills, there really wasn't that many opportunities for you. Now, if you like, say for example, if you know how to do blacksmith work or you like you had a technical skill, then you will be able to kind of parlay that into providing for your family. But if you didn't have any technical skills, well, how could you gain them? And of course, that's where serving in the military kind of played a role in that. Because of course, as, as time will go on with the Buffalo Soldiers, and even really up to this day when it comes to the military, if you were a former slave and you managed to find your way out to where they were recruiting for these units and you joined them, you can go out to the frontier, you can make you can make more money than probably anybody else that you may have known know about could make. You're able to get a basic education and not only that, get a get a basic education, gain skills and 
if you stayed in the military, you got to the point where you where you could even in some places collect a pension, or even if you didn't serve that long in the military, you get out the military and then stay out in the, in the Western frontier and actually get a chance to basically have land or stay somewhere where you might have had to encounter Jim Crow, but Jim Crow wouldn't be as stringent as it would be back in the deep south. Okay. Now, I'm probably getting a little bit ahead of myself, but going back to the going back to your main question about the Buffalo Soldiers, with the creation of those of those six regiments, by by the time eighteen sixty nine rolled around, the four infantry regiments, because of again, going to what we mentioned before about not really being at full strength, they decided to consolidate them down to the 24th and 25th infantry. So by that point, that's when we started getting the what we now know as the famous Buffalo Soldier Race, which was, the, which was the 9th and 10th Cavalry and 24th, 25th infantry. Now, keep in mind, even though the Buffalo Soldiers did kind of have individual ties to the Civil War, individual soldiers who who came from serving in the Civil War to joining the Buffalo Soldiers, the units were not directly connected to the Civil War. Like, after, so, like, it wasn't a case where they said, okay, well, we have a U.S. United Color Troop Regiment that's out in, in this area. Let's go ahead and convert them over to a peacetime army unit. No, they had to basically build these from scratch. So, but when it comes to the units that, that are known as the Buffalo Soldiers, Usually when people refer to Buffalo soldiers, they're usually referring to cavalrymen. And depending on where you go, it depends on who they specifically refer to. Because in some records, they say, well, really, the Buffalo soldiers were the 10th cavalry. And some will say, well, it was a 10th cavalry. Some will say it's a 9th cavalry. But usually all the one thing that records can agree with, that usually when they refer to Buffalo soldiers, the main reference was cavalry. Cavalry in the Western frontier. Now, it really wasn't until the beginning of World War I where you start seeing the two infantry regiments I mentioned before, the 24th and 25th, being considered a part of the Buffalo Soldiers. And the reason why was because during the build-up to World War I, a lot of the experienced Black soldiers that were transferred into these units that were getting raised to go overseas, and, go overseas, go overseas to France, was, some of them were getting pulled some of them, a lot of the staff and a lot of the senior NCOs for those units were getting pulled from those veteran units that served on the frontier. And in, in the case of one of the units, I think it was the 356th Infantry Regiment, some of, a lot of their NCOs came from the original Buffalo Soldiers Unit. So as a result, from the original Buffalo Soldiers Unit, so as a result, they adopted the model of being the Buffaloes, which in turn, the 366th, I'm getting tongue tied. The 366th Infantry Regiment kind of became one of the core regiments for the 92nd Infantry Division, which also became the Buffaloes. But wait, did I answer your question? I know I kind of went on a, a whole, a whole <laughs> historical tangent, basically. But well, well, you you you, you did, and 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 because because basically, why I wanted to make clear that the that the Massachusetts 54th was not if uh what were not Buffalo soldiers. The name hadn't come about yet is what i was trying to get it and that is exactly the, that is correct that those were not buffalo soldiers those but those were black soldiers um that you know just yes, a, uh kind of etymology of where the name came from because i i think 
when we when I talk to people and when we talk historically, that's the perception that people have that all black soldiers were called were considered buffalo soldiers and not that buffalo soldiers were a very specific unit or a very specific soldiers in a different after the civil war is what I was exactly in fact if, if you if you don't mind I, I can kind of explain like I can kind of explain how people kind of came to look at like certain uh, black soldiers in general as buffalo soldiers if you don't have to go ahead and explain it if you don't mind yeah go ahead yeah so like kind of kind of picking up where I started uh, stop there with the 366 I'm getting tongue tied that's the down for my knowing all these numbers basically but it's like when World War One broke out, a lot of the veteran soldiers from the Buffalo Soldier Regiment, the 9th and 10th Cavalry and 24th and 25th Infantry Regiment, a lot of them were transferred to black units that were getting raised in World War One to see service in France. And a lot of those a lot of those soldiers, because they had pride in their units, they would kind of carry over they'll kind of carry over the stories and carry over the like the, the stories of how they got the nickname Buffalo Soldiers and where it came from and everything else. So as time went on, like not only during World War One but even in World War Two, you you saw because again in World in World War in World War Two, a lot of the veteran black non commissioned officers and even some of the black commissioned officers came from again most a lot some of them came from those veteran Buffalo Soldier regiments because again during the peace time. During during the interwar period, apart from a few black National Guard units in Illinois or New York, those were in essence these veteran black units in the army. So when they started raising, when they started basically doing general mobilization again in World War II, a lot of NCOs and a lot of NCOs came from those Buffalo Soldier units, and as a result. You started seeing again kind of the something that happened in World War One, the veterans spreading out, passing out, explaining the stories and kind of instilling the spirit of core amongst the un- new units. So okay, okay. Let me, did- yeah, let me let me ask you this and, and keep going. And I, I don't want to now after the Buffalo Soldiers unit was raised in after the Civil War. Now, is there some yes, consistency throughout history now where there no black soldiers, there were no black soldiers in World War One? Or had this unit been disbanded and, and then brought back in World War Two? Is my question. Well, the, for the, well, the, the thing is, after eighteen sixty six, the units that were that what we now call the Buffalo Soldiers, the ninth and tenth and twenty fourth and twenty fifth, they remained in the U.S. Army service pretty much continuously from eighteen sixty six to roughly about the end of the Korean, or roughly about the beginning of the Korean War. So. During World War One, the units were actually around during World War One, but un- but for some reason, the U.S. Army did not deploy the Buffalo Soldiers overseas. In fact, the Buffalo Soldier regiments were mostly stationed. You had Buffalo Soldier units that were stationed in Texas. Some were stationed in Arizona, but you also had Buffalo Soldier units that were stationed in Hawaii as well. So they were around during World War One, and in fact, well, I'll try to. I'll kind of explain that later about the World War II phase because the World War II phase is really interesting. Really, the Korean War phase is really interesting as well. But but while they were around in World War One, for some reason, the U.S. Army did not deploy the Buffalo Soldiers overseas to Europe. What they did 
they mostly deployed troops that were raised that were raised during the general mobilization period. So, of course, during World War One, you had the the black soldiers that were part of the 92nd Division or the Buffalo Division that went over to Europe. And arguably, the more famous of the of the black divisions raised the 93rd Division. And the reason why they were famous during World War One is because not because they actually went over there as a division, but because their unit, the the division contained the 369th Infantry Regiment, otherwise known as the Harlem Hellfighters. Now, the thing is with the Harlem Hellfighters, and I'll kind of kind of bring it back to South Carolina in the interesting. The Harlem Hellfighters was really originally a national, a black national guard unit because in the northern, the northern states of the Midwestern states during the late 1890s, early 1900s, you had black communities that was advocating for the creation of black national guard units or black militia units. So New York had the 15th New York. I think Illinois had the 8th Illinois, and you had a few other areas that had Black National Guard units. But in the case of the South, you really didn't see that. However, well, during World War One, when they had general mobilization for the 90, specifically when they're trying to create the 93rd Division, you had the 369th, which came from New York. You had the 370th, which I want to say came from either Illinois or Ohio. And you had the 372nd, which was also a Black National Guard unit. But one of the units that often get overshadowed in World War One, and as a person who was from, is from South Carolina, it really pissed me off to a degree, is the 371st Infantry Regiment. Now, the 371st Infantry Regiment, unlike the, the 369th, the 370th, and 372nd, the 371st was, in essence, an all-conscript all regiment. So a lot of the people that was, unlike the people who was in the 39th Infantry, who who mostly kind of built their core around people that black were serving in the, in the local New York militia or the, New, or the New York National Guard, the 371st Infantry was composed primarily of draftees that, probably of draftees, but they could build everything from scratch. Now, another thing that made it unique, too, is that the vast majority of the people who served in the 371st Infantry came from South Carolina. Now, you did have a few people that came from North Carolina, and you had a few that, I think, it came as far, from as far north as Wisconsin. But the vast majority of the people who served in the 371st came from South Carolina. And the, in fact, the 371st, they, they went overseas to France, and they fought, they fought under the, I think it was the 157th French Division or the Red Hand Division, I want to say. But for the longest, the 371st Infantry Regiment had one of the most unique honors when it came to black service in World War I, which was for the longest they had the only known medal, the only Medal of Honor recipient, which was Corporal Freddie Stowers, which was from, I think, the upstate, upstate area of South Carolina. Now, of course, now everybody talks about uh, uh, Sergeant Johnson from the 39th Infantry for getting the Medal of Honor, but before he was Posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor from President Obama. Back in the early 90s, George Bush Sr. posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor to Corporal Freddie Sowers. And part of that had to do with kind of the fact that that people were talking about the court, you know, kind of show kind of the how, how, how much of an odd person I am in this regard. 
a lot of people were talking about a person named Sergeant York, which was this guy from the from the from the South. He was uneducated, but he was crack shot, and like he his claim is that he basically he basically ended up capturing I think an entire German regiment. Now, and of course he got the Medal of Honor. He got movies made in his honor and everything else. With Corporal Freddie Sowers, you had a similar story where he was from the South too. He, he didn't have that much education, but he was an excellent soldier. And in the battle that he that he ultimately sacrificed his life in, like in the battle, all the senior, all the officers were killed. All the senior non-commissioned officers were killed. So he was a senior. Basically, keep in mind, a corporal was a very low-ranking non-commissioned officer. So he became the de facto leader of his of his base of his squad. So under heavy gunfire, he continued up the hill. He basically kept trying to clear clear trenches and everything else. And he ultimately sacrificed his life. And by doing that, he ended up basically helping his unit, helping his squad and the other elements of his unit advance and secure the hill. So of course, of course it basically of course because of the stories and the way that the US Army worked at the time, he didn't get the Medal of Honor then. Of course, it took it really took years down the road for him to get the, the Medal of Honor his family, him and his family rightfully deserved. But wait, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on a whole other tangent. Basically, what was, what was the question again? Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. I was just li- yeah, no. I I was just listening. That um the the stories you're t- you're telling um yeah. I mean, it needs to be. I mean, it, they need to be told. Uh, because I I had no idea, so that that that's fine. Um, but uh, and, and I, I definitely um, am going to look up some of those names and some of those regiment numbers. Um, before I let you go, can you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing or the research you're doing now on World War II and African American soldiers not being awarded the GI Bill? Tell me a little bit about that work. Well, currently. My, currently, what I'm doing, I'm researching basically, like I mentioned before, black soldiers in the GI Bill. Now, the thing is, historically speaking, the, really the GI Bill really didn't come out till about 1944. And the idea behind it is that, well, and I'm sorry, in order to explain this, I've got to wait to go to, to another part of history, basically, but I'm, I'm sorry for that. But hopefully, I'll, hopefully, by explaining, I'll basically get back to the main point. So, with the in aftermath of World War One, prior to World War One, while some soldiers might have gotten received pensions, the people that served in large scale wars, they, they if they were lucky, they may have gotten a pension, but overall they may or may not have gotten a pension. So in World War One, because a lot of veterans a lot of veterans were promised a pension, but of course the Great Depression happened and that led to a large scale protest which ultimately ended up seeing ironically the future Big name officers like MacArthur and Patton clashing with World War One veterans over receiving benefits. Now, when the veterans finally did receive their benefits, they were able to not live a lavish life, but basically have enough economics to provide for their families. So, when World War Two came about, a lot of people who saw what happened during that interwar period said, "Okay, well, we got to create a way to help reintegrate these veterans who are coming back from this war back into society." And that's where the GI Bill came in. The GI Bill was supposed to provide help, provide access to education, and some in some cases to have access to low interest loans and everything else. So to try to help these veterans return back to society and 
ultimately readjust and be prosperous or have the tools to be prosperous in this post in a post war society. Now the thing was during World War Two, a lot of black veterans came back and either and and usually it was kind of due to two cases. You had case one, the black veteran who might have received the blue discharge paper. Now the blue discharge was this it was a discharge that was neither honorable nor dishonorable. And because it existed in that gray area, it locked veterans out of receiving like benefits of the GI Bill, VA benefits, and everything else. Now, and as a result, at the time, it was disproportionately given out to black soldiers. And in fact, there was one recent article where this, it was a World War II, a German World War II that was 96 years old that finally got his, that finally got his blue discharge changed to an honorable discharge. But, but I'm getting a little bit off track, but you had the veterans that received the blue discharge paper, which automatically locked them out of the benefit. But then you had the veterans who, who received an honorable discharge, but because of the way that the discharge, that, that not the way the discharge, but the way that the GI Bill was implemented, unlike the veterans of World War One, where the federal government said, okay, we're just going to go ahead and pay out the pensions directly. Mm-hmm. In World War Two, the states had more of a say in how certain veterans got like basic GI benefits. Oh, okay. So in some areas, in some areas, like if you look at some of the northern states, even some of the southern states, you have black veterans who are able to access the GI Bill and gain an education. But in other cases, you had cases where black veterans who were supposed to have access to those benefits being denied those benefits. Oh, okay. And yeah, you, I, I get re- it. Yeah. Oh, I get it. So, and when you gave the right to the states, southern states like South Carolina did what they do well, followed their history, and disenfranchised. I, I oh, I understand. <laughs> oh, and, because in fact, there's a book. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I want to say, I want to say, I want to say the book was called "When Affirmative Action Was White" because I, I, I was. So that's one of the that's one of the books I'm using in my research, and one of them they mentioned it was a senator, I think it was a representative from Mississippi, and he made mention of how the black veterans who got their pensions in World War One, how they they stopped picking cotton in the fields, or how their families stopped serving as maids, and because again the money, like I said, well, the money wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough money to sustain themselves, and as a result. If you're a veteran and you got a family, you don't want your family out touring the cotton fields. You don't want your family basically being the help for another family, especially when you have enough money to sustain yourself. So as a result, you had you had this guy, and I think it was, I forgot his name, but you had people like him that's like, wait a minute, if these veterans come back and they get this money, if they get this, this direct money, then it's going to be difficult for us to keep them in place. It'll be difficult for us to get them to go back to working in the field, to go back to maintaining the the societal the societal their as they felt the societal position. So as a result, what ended up happening, you had black veterans who were who were denied access to the GI Bill, low interest loans, and in fact, what spurred me to do this research. And to start trying to research it was why I used to do living history in Texas. I was talking to a young guy. I said, yeah, at the time I was like 21, 22 doing living history. Keep in mind, living history is a very expensive hobby. And the only way I was doing it was because I was getting paid to do it. So I met this young guy. It was a young white gentleman. And I was talking to him. And I was like, 
he was watching the same age as me. He was like, listen, they're talking about like, how we got into World War II and how we how we got into women history. And and I started talking to him. Turns out he started talking about how, well, the reason why I was able to kind of afford to do this and do these events and do women's history is because, well, my great great grandfather, his great grandfather came back from World War II, was able to apply the GI Bill and the low interest loans to start a small trucking company. And in turn, the trucking company, it wasn't a large trucking company, but it was enough to basically put food on the table and sustain the family. And then by the time it got to his father, his father was able to go to college, basically, with, with, and the parents were able to take care of it. And in turn, he was doing the same thing. And then I thought to myself, uh, and I started thinking about stories where I would meet people at the museum where they would say, well, oh, my, my grandfather or my or my uncle fought in the war too, but when he came back, he couldn't find work. Or, like, he had skills, but he had a hard time getting a chance to probably say, well, sorry, we only have work for a dishwasher or some menial job. And, of course, when I started reading more in college, I started kind of noticing the certain kind of specific trends where you saw the people that received the GI Bill were able to, receive the GI Bill or receive the benefits of it were able to get to a point to where they were able, able to economically sustain themselves, start businesses, and in essence, live the American dream. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the black veterans who, whose families were, who were locked out of the GI Bill, you look at their families and either, like you might have a, a few cases here and there where their family was still able to succeed, but they had significant hurdles to overcome to get to that point. And you also had other families who, who had massive hurdles that, that if they had the GI Bill and they were able to, if, the, if, the, if their ancestors had access to the GI Bill and the low interest loan, they'll be able to overcome those hurdles. But then, again, you can't talk about the, the denial access with denial access to the GI Bill and low interest loans without talking about redlining as well. So when you apply that and you apply the fact that, okay, these, these veterans came back and if they were fortunate, they might have had access to housing where the housing may have their homes may appreciate value, and then if they had to sell, they'll have money to pass on their kids. If you're in a red line area, you don't have that. So it ends up being, it, it, in essence, you can say that it ends up being kind of the ultimate, like you say, the ultimate denial of rights. Mm-hmm. Because after all, these men fought World War II, they fought and they came back home, and in addition to being treated as second class citizens, they were denied the tools to, in essence, become American. And ironically, from talking to even veterans of as late as Vietnam, like, you kind of see similar similar stories popping up, too. So, let's say, hopefully, and hopefully, once I get in the grass, I'll be able to kind of, to basically flesh out, flesh it out, and, and provide concrete evidence to show this. And show, okay, well, this is why this needs to be addressed. And ultimately, hopefully, the long-term goal would be to get to a point where we know who these families are, how they've been impacted, and move to take us to redress that. Because even though it's like multiple generations late, and of course you really can't atone for the suffering that those families have to go through, but at the very least we can take steps to get those families families in the on the right track and get them the the, the fair access to the American life that they that they long deserved. 
Right. And, 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 and I think that, yeah, and I, I definitely think that that, that should happen. And if, if you find out that information and, and it's concrete and we could, we love to uh, have you back on the show and, and, and do a story about it, because I, I do think if we're able to locate some of these families, I do think those benefits should be paid to their, their surviving uh, relatives and their family members. Uh, oh, most definitely that should be paid out um, to these families. Um, so I, I, I just like to say, wow. Um, I learned a lot, um, that, that, that is, you've, you've less, you've left us with some, some real, uh, historical nuggets. And I definitely going to look up some of those, uh, regiments and, and some of these people, man. And the work that you are doing, um, I, I, I think it's an important, um, it's not everybody out here doing it and, and things like that is a, important to our community because when you start talking about reparations and, 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 and making sure that African American, that candidates have a, um, an agenda, uh, that specifically targets and benefits African American, it's good to know that there are instances where we, concrete instances where we can show even more where we've been denied basic rights and, and, and basic exactly. resources and man i'm just oh man that that makes my heart feel good man I, I i really appreciate you brother and uh you know keep keep doing what you're doing man and like i said if it's, it's anything that the minority i can do to help uh get this information out there uh tell the story or, or, or you know acts you know any any people um who may know that their great uh great grandfather was denied GI benefits and and so you'll have some you know some family members that may can t- uh talk to you of the personal impact you know I you know we love to do it um but I just like this uh thank you again brother for coming on and just and just sharing with us a, a much needed uh facts about our history Hey, thank you. That's, that's I always tell people. I always, anytime I get a chance to talk about Black military history, like it brings a smile to my face, especially because I don't get a chance to talk about it that much. So anytime somebody asks me asks me a question about Black military history, like I'm there, I'm there, and I'm gonna do my best to answer that question. So I said, thank you for bringing me on and let me talk about my favorite subject. So. All right. Well, thank you once again. That that was uh, Kale Carter, and he is a military his, history enthusiast. And for all you guys, this Memorial Day, I hope you you and your family stay safe. And once again, I like to say thank you to all those men and women currently serving in the uniform, those who have served, and of course those who've given the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Minority Voice. For those of you who would like to be a part of our mission to start a courageous conversation that educates and empowers minority communities wherever they are, you can support us by subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with your friends on social media, or liking and commenting with your thoughts. And if you would like to advertise with us or be a guest, or perhaps you have an idea for a show, please email me at mb at the or call us at 803 803- Five six seven fifty three fifty nine. Thank you for listening and remember, it's not when my voice is raised you should worry, it's when I have nothing more to say. Once again, I'm Michael Bailey and this has been the Minority Voice Podcast.